Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Putin's War and the Threat from Communist China, unaddressed by Senator Marco Rubio. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Well, good morning and welcome, especially to our growing audience here in person. Those of you who are online, welcome to you as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the stage here momentarily one of Heritage's friends, our distinguished guest, Senator Marco Rubio. He's a ranking member of the Select Committee on Intelligence, and of course, we look forward to the wisdom he has in particular as it pertains to foreign policy and especially the existential threat posed to the world by the Chinese Communist Party. After the Senator's remarks, he'll have time for a couple of quick questions, and then I'll turn it over happily to my colleagues, Dustin Carmack, Dean Chang, and Michael Ellis to continue the discussion. It goes without saying that the world's a turbulent place. Obviously, our eyes have been focused on Ukraine rightly. We take some solace and a little bit of encouragement in the fact that the Russian military is showing what our experts here at Heritage have said, which is that it's not the threat that you think that it is. And in some respects today, there are parts of the Russian army that seem to be in retreat. That underscores the following point, which Heritage has been saying for months. And it is that while our hearts are with the Ukrainian people, their brave President Zelensky, and we understand that Russia is an adversary, they are not the number one adversary for America in the world. That is a, a place held by the Chinese Communist Party. This day, every day, until we defeat them, until we defeat the Chinese Communist Party, the United States of America, the Heritage Foundation, will stand ready to engage. It is in that spirit that I am delighted to welcome Senator Marco Rubio to the stage. Thank you. Thank you guys for coming this morning. I appreciate it. I was just asking before we started, you know, is uh, what this would have looked like a year ago. And I'm just so happy to see so many people here in person and, and to be with you in person. And to those who aren't here that are watching, uh, all four of them that are watching on the live stream for me, I appreciate all. Uh, three of them live in my home, so that's good. But, um, but, it, but it is good to be back here at Heritage, uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you know, a lot has changed uh, since the last time that I was here. Uh, you have a new building, uh, a new president. And there's also a new president down the road here in this country. And today, I do want to talk about what I think has changed the most in the last, since the last time I've been here. And, uh, and that's the return of history. Now, I was raised in the uh, final decades of the Cold War. And then I entered adulthood in a world that was rapidly changing. The Berlin Wall was crumbling and the Soviet Union disappeared and, and Many said that we had reached the end of history. Um, and, and it was too easy at that time, really, to believe that peace and prosperity and optimism was going to reign forever. Uh, the 5,500 years of human barbarism was now going to be extinct, and globalization and Western liberal democracy was going to reign forever, that that was going to be the new order of things. But the truth is that that kind of exuberance uh, was never justified. 
And, and it was never justified for one very simple reason. Technologies advance and great powers rise and fall and the way we live life may change, but there is one thing that will never change. There was one thing that is the same today as it was 5,500 years ago and will be the same 5,500 years from now. Human nature. Human nature that's driven by the impulses of us as a fallen species uh, to, of the powerful to conquer and to enslave and to control those who they view as weaker than themselves. That is sadly human nature. Now, Vladimir Putin's invasion is a shocking reminder of the cruelty and the atrocities that man is capable of in pursuit of that instinct towards conquest and ambition. And uh, it's the opening chapter in the return of history. But it will neither be the last chapter, nor will it be the most dangerous one. For even as Putin is killing innocents and destroying cities in Eastern Europe, there is a greater challenge that awaits America and the world in the Far East. Right now, we're doing everything we can to help Ukraine repel and defeat criminal invaders. And still, as we talk about what can be done in Ukraine, a no-fly zone, and this and that, and the other ideas that people come up with, our options seem constrained. And they're constrained for two reasons. First, because Mar Moscow's nuclear arsenal. And second, because Europe is heavily dependent through the choices they made on Russia's oil and natural gas. In Beijing, we have an adversary that also has a nuclear arsenal. And it also, but it also controls the critical supply chains and has an influence over global markets that not even the old Soviet Union had. You know, for decades, the members of the Chinese Communist Party hid their true ambitions, their true ambition to remake the global order, to become the world's most powerful nation. Well, they don't hide it anymore. They don't believe, for example, in concepts of like universal rights and global engagement and international law and all these terms that are thrown around because their geopolitics the geopolitics reflects human nature. They believe in raw power. They believe because they are a big country that their smaller neighbors have to be their tributaries. And they believe that the only way for them to become more powerful is to make others weaker, particularly America. This is the raw, unvarnished truth about the Chinese Communist Party and the biggest, the single biggest geopolitical blunder of the last quarter century was the naive bipartisan widely held belief that free trade and globalization alone was going to change all this, in particular, was going to change them. As a consequence of that blunder, we did nothing. While for over two decades, China methodically undermined our economic strength by stealing our critical technology, our manufacturing capacity, our jobs. We did nothing while they destroyed our social cohesion by luring away those jobs and as a result, hollowing out once vibrant cities and communities. We did nothing as they used a corporate lust for quarterly profits to infiltrate every segment of American society, from government and business to academia and entertainment. And we do nothing as they flood our cities with fentanyl in this century with results reminiscent of the opium crisis in Chinese cities in the 19th century. It took far too long to wake up to this reality. Thankfully, the, the Trump presidency signaled the end of a flawed bipartisan consensus on China, and I hope and believe the emergence of a new consensus, albeit one that is still developing, 
a consensus that China is the most formidable near-peer adversary this country has ever faced. But while we have made measurable progress in recognizing that the old bipartisan consensus was flawed, our transition to a new approach is still being held back. We have right now, as we speak on the Senate floor, this, uh, this so-called China bill. And, and it takes meaningful steps towards reinvesting in our nation's capabilities. So there's good things in that bill, but it doesn't build sufficient safeguards to protect taxpayer-funded research and industrial investment. And it's because of pressure from universities and industry. In essence, it pours billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars into activities that the Chinese are stealing now, except with less money. Now they'll just have access to more to steal. Similarly, the China initiative that was created by President Trump it was created to empower the Department of Justice to counter Beijing's vast espionage campaign against Americans' universities and, and industry and research centers. That was just shut down by President Biden because left-wing activists smeared it as racist, as xenophobic. Of course, those are the magic words that gets anything canceled or anything uh, shut down. Look, we're not going to be able to address the unprecedented threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party as long as this White House and American politicians continue to prioritize the whims, the pet causes, uh, the speech code of progressive identity politics, above, putting that above our country's economic and national security. And our response to China isn't just being handicapped by wokeism. It's also being han handicapped by outdated economic interests. And I said this at the time, when, when the Trump administration entered into phase one of the deal with China, that really did little more than, than boost agricultural trade. And even there, the Chinese haven't kept their word on, on it. And, and it gave Wall Street the green light to further subsidize China's economy. And why did that happen? Well, that happened because Beijing has and continues to deputize American corporations and turn them into their lobbyists and their advocates right here in Washington. It was American companies. It was American companies that lobbied to defeat, to stop, to impede my bill to block imports made with Uyghur slave labor in China. And not just any companies, iconic brands, Nike, Coca-Cola, Apple. They were more interested in appeasing the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping because that allows them to maximize their profit margins. They were more interested in that than, than doing what is both morally right and good for their country. It was interesting last night to read Disney, which filmed Mulan in Xinjiang, in the very province where they have these, these genocide camps. And then in the credits of the movie, they thank the local government officials who run those camps. But apparently they're outraged that in Florida, our schools won't be teaching five-year-olds about gender identity. Look, th there's nothing wrong with companies wanting to make a profit. In fact, a company that doesn't make a profit won't be a company for long. That's what, cap that's what the capitalist system does. That's what the companies do. But by the same token, we have to understand we'll never be able to confront the threat before us if our public policy is built solely on the pursuit of corporate profit, just on that, without accounting for what's in the best interest of America. There was a time when large American corporations not only made a profit, but they did so 
in a way that also ended up promoting things like patriotism and pride in the values that, that are enshrined in our Declaration of Independence, the respect for the dignity of every person. But now we live in a world in which our most successful companies, which by the way have addresses in America, but consider themselves citizens of the world, those companies, they can simultaneously defend Uyghur slave labor or ignore it, they can censor conservative voices in the United States and hold compulsory struggle sessions at their offices in the service of the woke agenda. We can no longer afford to allow public policy towards China to be held hostage by leftist radicalism, by lack of corporate patriotism, because China is no longer hiding its strength and biding its time. Since 2012, Xi Jinping's words and actions make it clear that Beijing believes it, is, it now has enough power to begin to remake the international order in its image. And the time has come for China to reinstate itself as the Middle Kingdom, the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific and eventually the world. China now pursues economic imperialism and trapping the developing world through the exploitative, exploitative loans of the Belt and Road Initiative. They're now an imminent aggressor to our allies and our partners in places like Taiwan and Japan and India and elsewhere. And these trends are not going to get better. They're only going to accelerate. They're only going to worsen from this point forward. So a few things we can do to address it, particularly four. I think first it starts with unity and clarity about the threat that we face. The gravest threat facing America today it is the challenge that will define not just this century, but my generation and every generation represented here in this room today. That challenge is not climate change. It's not the pandemic. It's not the left's version of social justice. The threat that will define this century is China. And we will need a whole of society, not just government, whole of society effort to match them. Conservatives need to understand this. Liberals need to understand this. Small businesses need to understand this. And so do businesses like Tesla, like Amazon, like all the ones I've mentioned here today. If these mega corporations aren't going to get on board, we need to start asking ourselves, why do they or anyone in their position for that matter deserve the protection and the patronage that comes from operating within the context of the United States, our laws, and the protections our government provides yet they consistently promote and defend efforts that undermine our national security and our long-term economic strength and viability. The second thing we have to do is we have to empower government to counter Beijing's infiltration. Now, those are not words you often hear spoken in, at the Heritage Foundation by any speaker, empower government. But here's the thing. Being a conservative is not being anti-government. It's understanding that most of the answers to the problems in life don't come from government. But there are a few things that government has to do, like provide for the national security. And in that vein, that's why this China initiative should be reinstated. If it needs improvement, let's improve it. We should, by all means, we should make those improvements. But we shouldn't be letting partisan politics or all this other stuff that's going on in our cultural warfare in our society get in the way of, a, of an issue that's vital to our national security. Nor can our response to espionage and trade secret thefts be one of half measures, like the so-called China bill the House and Senate are soon going to be negotiating. Throwing money, your money, at university research that's going to be easily stolen, 
is not how we're going to defend the national interest. Third, we need to revitalize our industrial capacity, especially if we're interested in making sure that the American century, that this is an American century, rather than surrendering it to communists. A country, a nation that's dependent on hostile regimes is not going to last long. It's very simple. You can't be a great power if you're not an industrial power. You have to be able to make things. That's why in this country we made a decision a long time ago that we were going to buy our weapons, particularly our airplanes, from American companies that make them in America. Well, the menu of things that are now critical to our national security has expanded. I would argue that being able to make semiconductors are just as important to our national security. I would argue that the active ingredients in our pharmaceuticals is in our national security. And relying on a, on a hostile adversary for these things and more will leave us vulnerable, will leave us weak. Uh, think about the, all the hand-wringing that we saw over banning Russian oil, which frankly accounts for just a very small percentage of America's consumption, and it can easily be replaced four times over by just increasing domestic production. Well, now think about what would happen for a moment. Go forward a few years, and we're in some sort of conflict with China. Think about what would happen if they decided, okay, we're just going to cut you off of everything. Sports equipment, for sure, cut you off of iPhones. We're going to cut you off of rare earth minerals, because you'll need those for the technology that powers your weapons systems. Think about all the things that we depend on China and its manufacturing capacity to provide. Imagine being cut off from it. Imagine the leverage that would give them. You think our options are limited now with Russia. We won't have very many in that conflict. It should be obvious to everyone by now that our dependence on Beijing is a vulnerability we can no longer accept. And finally, um, the fourth thing we should do is empower our allies and our partners. This is not just a competition between China and America. Beijing seeks to dominate its neighbors. It views them as vassal states, and that's tributary states, and that's its vision for the future of the Indo-Pacific region. These aren't buffer states. These are, there are no such things as buffer states. These countries, they just happen to be on the front lines. And in the coming months and years, our alliances, our partnerships with Taiwan, with Japan, Korea, India, all, and others, are going to be more crucial than ever. If our European allies are to stand firm against Beijing as well, they will need to be more skeptical of China's economic overtures. And most importantly, they will need to take greater ownership of their own security so they can take a leading role to counter Putin's aggression. And so we can focus on the threat of communist China in the Indo-Pacific. I think that the horrific invasion of Ukraine should have made countries across Europe realizing, realize by now that they're not living in some sort of post-conflict paradise or utopia. But, but that realization can't be a momentary blip that evaporates once Putin loses. It has to be sustained. It has to be sustained so that this country can prioritize and direct its resources to effectively counter Beijing in the years to come. These are four things. Domestic unity, a strong counter-espionage effort, a revitalized industrial policy, and empowered allies. These four things are crucial to staging a successful response to the threat of communist China. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's an essential one. I guess I'll close by 
ending where I started, you know, history didn't end with the 20th century. And now we're writing the history of the 21st century. And when it is written, that book is going to be about the relationship between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America. That's what will define the 21st century. And there really are only two ways forward. It's either going to be a story of how a rising authoritarian power replaced a free society as the world's most powerful country, and as a result ushered in a new dark age of exploitation and conquest and totalitarianism and all the worst aspects of human nature. Or this century will be the story of how the people of the United States, the freest, most prosperous, and successful nation in the history of the world, how the people of that nation, against considerable odds, rallied around the truths the country was founded on and ushered in a century of liberty and justice and prosperity. This, this is the fork in the road that we must navigate. And the time to choose our path has come. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what do, is someone going to, what do I do with questions? Okay, so you have a microphone? All right. And I can, I apologize, I can, yeah, I can take two, maybe three, depends on how long my answers are. You pick them, because then I don't want anybody mad at me. Hi, Marilee, International Trade Today. You mentioned your bill. I wanted to get your thoughts about the implementation of Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Are you concerned that corporations will continue to lobby in a way that it will be weakened as it's enforced by CBP? Yeah, look, every law is only as good as its implementation. And if, uh, if you have any doubt about that, take a trip down to the southern border of the United States of America. So on this particular bill, the law is a presumption. It basically presumes that anything made in Xinjiang, potentially even a movie like Mulan, um, is made by slave labor, unless you can prove that it wasn't. So what that will require is for the federal government to be strict in, in that presumption, to basically force companies to show you, if they can, uh, how this is being produced, or relocate their productive capacity away from that place because of the presumption. So if we have enforcers that are being strict about it and, and interpreting according to the law, then, then the bill is going to work. But if we have an administration that decides to use that as leverage and say, well, let's, let's not enforce it too strictly because the corporate lobbyists are here banging at the door of the White House, and by the way, you know, we, want, we don't want China to be upset at us because we want to do a Green New Deal climate thing with them, then I think we're going to have a problem. So I think I am concerned about it because um, any law that we pass ultimately requires the executive branch to implement it. And, uh, and it's my hope that they'll, they'll implement it better than their... Uh, it's my hope that they, the spirit with which this White House was lobbying against my bill, because they were calling people, this is on the record, they, they, Democratic senators that came forward and said they got calls from the White House asking us to slow it down and not to pass this. Let's hope that spirit is not the spirit that infuses how this is enforced, because if it is, then the law is not going to be very effective. Well, I don't have the mic, so whoever you pick, because that way it's totally random. Yeah, I guess up here is fine. One from the left, one from the right. Get it? So, so you know, Michael Novak's the spirit of democratic capitalism. The premise was that capitalism would solve the problem with China. You seem to be advocating, in essence, a 
an advancement of government power, as you said, to confront it. Has the moment for capitalism to win this fight passed, in your opinion? Well, the problem is that the, the notion, the idea was that capitalism would change China. And the problem is capitalism didn't change China. China changed capitalism in China. They redefined what it meant. This, cap, that's the other problem. Capitalism is when you have two companies or two entities operating, or two countries, operating under the same set of rules, and the better and more efficient uh, company succeeds. That's not what we have. China's not capitalist. Their companies are heavily subsidized. They have exclusive access to their marketplace. They don't, op they don't uh, respect intellectual property. They don't respect uh, uh, trademarks and copyrights and patents. They don't respect uh, trade secrets. They'll, if they allow a, a, an American business to do work in China, you have to partner with one of their companies until the company learns to do what you do, and then they kick you out. How's, that's not capitalism. That's cheating. Um, you know, that's like allowing one team to play basketball with five people and the other team to have ten. Um, and then people argue, well, you're against basketball. No, I'm not. I'm against ten to five <laughs> basketball. And so that's what we're facing here. All right, I'll take one more because I'm feeling generous. Let's do one from the center. That way, they did the middle, the right, and the left. See? Um, hi, I'm a hi. student at GW for International Affairs. Um, I'm from Venezuela, so I wanted to ask you, what's the role in Venezuela? Because we have Russia inside us, we have China controlling vast um, companies and taking gold out of our Amazon, although nobody's talking about it. And now Biden's administration wants to take oil. ¿De dónde eres en Venezuela? De el Oriente. De Oriente. So the question about Venezuela is an interesting one. Um, it's actually an example of, of what a big difference there is between what the world will look like if the most powerful and influential country in the world is China instead of the United States. So they don't care that the Maduro regime has exiled 7 million, 7 or 8 million Venezuelans. 6 point something, almost 7 million Venezuelans have fled the country, not in the last 30 years, in the last five, six. Okay, don't care about that doesn't care that you've taken the nation with, at one point, the most you know, productive uh, oil industry and eviscerated it from 3 million barrels a day to 800,000 on a good day. Doesn't care that uh, they've jailed, murdered uh, political opponents, and they care about any of that. China has lent them a bunch of money. The Venezuelan regime can't afford to pay it back, so they pay it back with oil at a discount. So they literally are paying back service, not the debt, just the service on the debt, to China with oil at a discount. So at a time of record oil prices in the world, that money that could have been generated to benefit the Venezuelan people, to build schools, to rebuild infrastructure, all those sorts of things is instead going to finance a debt owed by Venezuela to China. It's predatory. And this is not a poor country that's been made poor by socialists and Marxists who are also happen to be corrupt. But they're not a poor country. This is the practices that they carry out all over the world. It's ironic that China loves to go around saying, we stand for sovereignty and non-interference. And that's the argument they say for, don't, tell us, don't talk to us about Uyghurs, don't talk to us about Taiwan, don't talk to us about Tibet. That's an internal matter of a sovereign nation. We don't interfere in our internal affairs. Well, Putin just interfered in the internal affairs of another country. Putin just took over someone else's territory, or tried to, or is trying to. Apparently, China doesn't have a problem with that. And it's the same thing. It's a hypocrisy. They do that. How, you cannot argue that a nation, 
that owes that much money to China and is paying it back with the nation's wealth. And, and you mentioned not just oil, but illegal gold mining, which, which is, it's not just the bullion that they have in their national reserves. There's illegal strip mining going on in critical environmentally sensitive areas of Venezuela, and they're destroying it. Also, they can pay that, they can use that since they don't have access to dollars, so the regime can use it to finance themselves in power primarily by distributing patronage to the individuals that prop up the regime, and they use that gold to China, but primarily to places like Iran. And, and, uh, and so, yes, it, it's, a, it's a terrible situation, and it's an example of the kind of world we'll live in. There'll be a lot of Venezuelas in the 21st century if China becomes the most powerful nation in the world and there isn't a free and prosperous America to stand in its way. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I just want to thank the senator again for, for joining us and his, his great remarks. I want to welcome my colleagues, uh, Dean Chang and uh, Michael Ellis, who's a visiting fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, well, we had very interesting and great remarks by the senator. And uh, first off, I'd love to, to get your guys' thoughts on uh, what he had to say. Dean, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, I thought that it was a uh, remarkably concise but comprehensive coverage of the kind of threat that the PRC does in fact pose. I think he hit most of the important high points, which above all is that China looks at the world very differently than we do. And also differently from how any other American adversary has that we look back on, whether it was Imperial Germany or Nazi Germany or even the Soviet Union. You know, the Soviets were probably the closest, but as the Senator described, China poses a far more comprehensive threat, aided and abetted by the reality that it has the second largest GDP in the world. The Soviets wanted to be the second largest GDP. We now know that they weren't. But they also never had all of the tools of trade, of cyber espionage, all of those things. So I thought that that was a, a bravura performance of informing the public of why should we worry about China? Right. Michael? That's, that's right. And I think one of the key themes that the senator hit on is that our competition to China is likely to be primarily economic. Um, and that is part of what differentiates, as Dean mentions, from, from prior competitions. That the, the threat is that they exercise so much economic power that the in, entanglement of our economy with theirs is, is so deep that it's a fundamentally different threat than we've seen before which is why the Biden administration's decision to end, for instance, the DOJ China initiative is so disappointing and so damaging to our national security. When the Chinese economic threat relies on espionage, espionage targeted against US companies, against US research institutions, sending that message both to China and also to, to, the, uh, uh, to the American public that we are deprioritizing efforts to combat that threat is deeply concerning and dangerous. Speaking of that, you uh, you just wrote an excellent paper uh, regarding the uh, the DOJ China initiative and the and the administration's actions. Uh, I noticed yesterday, you know, um, I saw the president's uh, budget request and it included about 42 million dollars for counterintelligence uh, investigations and operations by the FBI, about 142 million for 
uh, for the DOJ National Security Branch. And when we talk about this, you know, the, the director of the FBI, the Reagan Library, in late January gave a speech where he essentially outlined all the awful things that we're worried about related to China. They're opening an investigation every 10 to 12 hours. They don't have the resources. It's economically entwined. We see them operating all the way down to the local and county levels to influence officials and build these kind of malign influence campaigns. And then less than two weeks later, you know, we see a speech uh, by DOJ to essentially walk a lot of this back. Some people say it's just papering over the name. It's, it's all just related to politics. Can you go a little bit more into your, your, your analysis of this and kind of where what your recommended actions would be? Yeah, and the counterintelligence funding point, I think Senator Rubio hit on, that's, that's important because if we're, again, in this economic competition with China, we have to protect our, our research and development. And if we fail to do that, we're going to lose um, in that competition. But you know, to your point, Dustin, you know, the FBI for years has said that Chinese economic espionage is the greatest domestic national security threat that we face. Yet, at the same time, you have the Biden administration ending the China initiative because they were unwilling to rebut claims by activists, claims by the media, that um, these prosecutions and the other efforts associated with the initiative, one of the misconceptions of, of, uh, uh, of the, a lot of the reporting around the initiative is that it was all about prosecutions. In reality, it was part of a whole of government effort to, to counter Chinese influence. But they failed to rebut the accusation by activists that this was somehow intrinsically racist. And that's just very disappointing that, again, the issue that the FBI has for years said is our greatest domestic national security threat, that the Biden administration was just unwilling to rebut that accusation that it was um, inherently racist. Well, we've seen successful prosecutions. There was a, was it Fox uh, Operation? Uh, Operation Fox. Fox. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the prosecution of Chinese operatives who were attempting to pressure and coerce dissidents uh, in the United States um, to return to China. Uh, the prosecutions of Chinese intelligence officers. You know, a lot of hay has been made about some of the grant fraud cases, claiming that you know it's just some like failure of paperwork. Someone checked the wrong box on a form, and next thing you know, they're headed to prison. That's just not the reality of it. You know, as a, as a first matter, as I mentioned, the China Initiative was always about much more than just prosecutions. You know, increased in, uh, enforcement of FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act more stringent review under CFIUS and the team telecom process, getting Huawei and ZTE gear out of um, the networks of, of critical U.S. infrastructure. But second, you know, grant uh, compliance with grant disclosure laws is important in and of itself, right? Um, there is a tremendous amount of, of money flowing into U.S. research institutions um, that came with strings attached, right? Came with strings attached to, to take that research back to China. Um, and then Third, you know, grant fraud cases, sometimes that's what the government can actually prove in court, but there's a lot of other conduct. Think of Al Capone and tax evasion, right? There was a lot of criminal activity the government uh, knew about with Al Capone. Tax evasion was the charge that they could put in front of a jury and secure a conviction on. Absolutely. Yeah, and when we're talking about the, uh, the so-called China bill, I mean, they're talking about spending 150 to $300 billion in different research and development money, including... Uh, you know, $52 billion to the semiconductor industry in which, you know, the industry doesn't want to prohibit further funds going back into Chinese investments. So uh, it's an interesting little nugget as we kind of go forward with that debate. But, uh, Dean, I wanted to kind of talk, you, you've been uh, doing a lot of analysis and, and uh, commentary related to the what we started off with, with the invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia and Putin, uh, and this interesting relationship uh, between Xi and Putin and, you know, we had this, uh, you know, this outcome and this uh, kind of directive ahead uh, of the Olympics and then the invasion, you know, immediately f uh, following it. Um, yesterday, Foreign Minister Lavrov said, you know, the, the relationship's closer than ever. 
What, what's your personal view of kind of where, where it currently sits? Because I've also seen other actions where they've been warning a lot of their companies to be worried about some of these sanctions, international sanctions that have been placed on the Russian. Well, I think it's always important to start with the realization that China and Russia are not allies. Right. They are aligned but not allied. So we need to not think of them the way we think of Britain's relationship with us or Japan's relationship with us. The good news is no one is expecting China, Chinese People's Volunteers 2.0 to show up in Ukraine to fight alongside the Russians. Um, that being said, the Chinese, because of their massive financial capabilities, have the ability to help maintain and sustain Russia. Now, you see a lot of articles saying, you know, China can't save Russia, and that's absolutely true. You know, the Chinese are not going to come in and basically run the Russian economy for them, although Russia might be better off if they did. Uh, the reality, however, is that if you look at how China has supported North Korea, it's kept that country on life support, and because of that life support, North Korea is now back to testing ICBMs. China can certainly help Russia to keep its economy limping along. And we see, for example, with the uh, withdrawal of MasterCard and Visa, UnionPay and Alipay have promptly stepped in to provide Russian consumers, for example, with credit cards. Now, you don't step into a country and replace MasterCard and Visa literally in about three or five days unless you had a whole lot of planning before that. And so that's the kind of thing that I think Lavrov is referring to, that underneath the surface there is a substrata, if you will, of measures that have been percolating along that have now been put into place. Again, the good news is that doesn't mean that there's going to be Chinese weapons showing up in Russian hands, but it does mean that Russia will continue to be able to function sort of as a semi-working economy and society. And that may be all Putin needs to keep the war going. Absolutely. <clears throat> when we look at, you've done a lot of analysis on Chinese capabilities, especially rapid development of, of a lot of their military capabilities. And I do a lot of time, we, you and I talk a lot about uh, China's cyber capabilities. As we kind of look at the, the invasion of Ukraine and the, either the lack of or probably the unknowing you know, of what has happened so, occurred so far on, on the cyber side, and we look at the issue of security of the Taiwan Straits and then Taiwan, what is your concern you know, related to Chinese capabilities, their developments that are unique, uh, even you know, superior to Russia that makes that situation more dangerous? So again, there's some good news here. It's much easier to invade across a land border than across 100 miles of some of the worst water in the world. So the Chinese, who haven't fought a war since 1979, recognize that they have a military that has new equipment, new organization, new commanders, new doctrine. And they are watching what has happened in Ukraine. And that's a huge reminder. Conventional war is hard. During you know, the Afghanistan, you know, 20 years we were in Afghanistan, you often heard people say, counterinsurgency is the graduate school of warfare. Not sure I ever bought that, but it turns out that undergraduate is pretty darn hard. Um, and it's really easy to get a failing grade, as Russia seems to be doing right now. But that being said, um, in some ways, it's also harder for us to defend Taiwan than it is to defend Poland because we have bases in Germany, we have four deployed forces. It is the ultimate away game to defend Taiwan. And that means space is essential and communications are essential. 
You can't coordinate two carrier battle groups if they're 100 miles apart without good communications. And that is what the Chinese are going to bring to the game in a way that Russia, for unclear reasons, hasn't really brought its A game to the Ukraine invasion. Um, we should expect the Chinese to go after our satellites. We should expect them to hack our communications. We should expect them to spoof and jam. Uh, Admiral Aquilino has noted that there are, in fact, jammers and other such systems already deployed on those artificial islands in the South China Sea. The Chinese are going to you know, put on their game face, and they're going to bring their A-team. And it's an interesting question how good their A-team is going to be when poised against us. Absolutely. Um, one of the Senator's last recommendations was on empowering our allies and partners. Uh, you know, Michael, you, you served uh, as the head of intelligence programs at the National Security Council in your previous position. You saw a lot of this interaction, especially interagency-wise, but also a lot with our foreign partners. Do you think that we're doing enough uh, on that side in terms of, you know, a lot of this is economic-based, a lot of these are international organization-based. We've seen how the Chinese especially have been working to kind of uh, place a lot of their uh, standards and procedures and uh, international bodies in their favor when it comes to the future of 6G, you know, and, and emerging technologies. Do you think we're doing enough, uh, and the administration's doing enough, or what would you recommend? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, 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 it is one of the critical areas of competition with China because one of the potential advantages that we have is that we have allies and partners in a way that they really don't, um, right? They, they don't have, uh, Dean mentioned they, they see they see tributary states, right? Uh, they see enemies, but they don't really have allies um, in the same certainly not in the same way that, that we do. Um, at the same time, you know, the Chinese campaign to take over some of these international organizations um, to pressure them has been years in the making, um, and it's going to take time to unwind. We we spent a lot of time and energy on that in the Trump administration, um, but I think it was really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of. Um, Again, the, the, the deep-seated Chinese efforts to bend some of these organizations like the World Intellectual Property Organization, um, uh, uh, really like just down the list of UN, UN affiliated agencies to, uh, to, to bend them to their, um, uh, to their policy goals. Um, so I, you know, I think it needs to be an area of continued emphasis for the administration. Um, and the, the danger I think here is not that the Biden administration will um, We'll, we'll actually announce, you know, we don't think this is important anymore. It'll be quiet. It'll be under um, under the radar that, you know, when you start inserting so many other goals for these international organizations, when you when you start trying to make every organization's goal to take on climate change, for instance, that you're going to lose sight of um, of countering Chinese influence, and that it'll just become one of many goals. Which, you know, if you say everything's a priority, it means truly that nothing is a priority. Yeah. Yeah, and one of those areas too, you know, when we're when we're talking about the geographic distribution of of maybe either emerging technologies or some industrial manufacturing, uh, somewhat you know sympathetic uh, to some of those concerns, but I, you know, generally have also kind of viewed that we need to be doing more as well, working with some of our allies and partners, and then almost the opposite of the way the Belt and Road Initiative and some of the actions when we look at Venezuela and others of, of kind of predatory behavior of China. And we can be looking for you know areas of cooperation with a lot of emerging countries, Brazil, others in South America, Africa, and other places uh, to also be partners, uh, kind of in that industrial base. And so I'd love to get your thoughts a little bit too, Dean, as on on that kind of semiconductor emerging technology debate. What are, what do we need to do as a country to kind of in in that space? Well, I think on the semiconductor issue, one of the things is to get more of the details right. 
Um, it is important to note here that, yes, China is pouring money. It has made a public goal of trying to catch up with the most advanced countries in terms of semiconductor manufacturing. But at least at this time, and for the, at least the next several years, China is nowhere close to being top peer. That is us, that is the South Koreans, that is Taiwan. Now, like the rabbit and the tortoise, you lie back on your laurels and you wake up and you know the other side is one. But that being said, that's an issue of being open to investment. But also, and, I, and here I, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree with the good senator. He seems to be something of an advocate for industrial policy. And the problem I have with that is industrial policy too often you know, picks wrong. We just don't see it. So the, the example I like to give is you know, to ask an audience, like the one here, how many of you have a cell phone? And how many of you have a computer? Now, how many of you have a European computer? How many of you run a European operating system or a program on your computer? Funny thing, a region that prides itself on industrial policy, on being able to pick the winners and losers, completely missed the information and communications technology revolution. And so that's the danger. I'm, I'm much more confident in, if you will, the wisdom of crowds in capitalism, being able to, at the end of the day, yeah, there will be wrong choices, and, and new coke comes to mind. Um, but at the end of the day, you'll still wind up with better technology cheaper than when somebody from on high says, I think that's the right answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and last time I checked, you know, maybe not, not an apples to apples in comparison, but there's about $800 billion in private investment uh, in long-term investment in semiconductor manufacturing going on. And, and two, about 80% of those uh, uh, semiconductors, no matter where they're built, uh, are run back through East Asia uh, eventually. So uh, I'll stop hogging the mic and uh, open it up to audience questions. I'd love to, love to hear from you all. We got a mic right here. I actually wanted to ask this question from Santa, but I would love to hear. Gentleman in the middle, I don't remember your name. You were talking earlier about Russia and China. And I have a Russian accent, but I'm American. I've been here 32 years. So the question is, you said that, and I agree with you, that I think, uh, and my name is Natalia, Lightning Associate. Anyway, I agree with you that I think China can do a whole lot to support Russia and to counteract our sanctions. So the question is, how realistic do you think that current administration and current Congress would impose sanctions on China to counteract China's help to Russia? And what else can we do to influence China? Just kind of to expand on what you're talking about. Well, Thank you. Absolutely. Um, as Dustin noted, Chinese companies have been warned by the Chinese government about the potential for secondary sanctions. Uh, even as China signed a 100 million ton coal deal with Russia, ironically as Russian tanks started to roll into Ukraine, um, Chinese banks, looking at the swift sanctions and other financial sanctions, many of them refused to issue letters of credit. So what you have is a mixed picture. The government is clearly willing to put a thumb on the scales in support of Russia. The more a company, a Chinese company, has ties to the West, it will look at its bottom line 
and say, I have a billion dollars worth of business in the West, I have $200 million worth of business with Russia, a billion is bigger than 200 million. Um, but that being said, that doesn't prevent the CCP from then coming in, however, and saying, that's nice, you're still going to go ahead and issue loans and other things. Although I, I think of you know, the role of Chinese um, banks and uh, in, with respect to Iran sanctions, where you know, they continued buying oil from Iran, what they, you know, when, when faced with the threat of secondary sanctions, what do they do? They set up like a, uh, a bank just for the purpose of doing business with Iran. I forget the name, it was a Kunlun Bank maybe? But uh, you know, they, they, set, they set up a sacrificial lamb bank, and then, okay, you know, maybe, that, maybe, maybe when the U.S. Treasury Department's uh, um, sanctions enforcers you know, come after it, that bank gets shut down. But you know, they, they figure out ways to keep setting up shell companies, keep staying one step ahead of us. That's, that's what I would fear with, with China and Russia as well. I absolutely agree. And so you know, if one of the things that could emerge from a good China bill would be hiring economic forensics uh, experts, um, which is probably one of the least sexy sounding biz, uh, career paths, but the kind of people who could go and actually run their way through these shell companies and say Kunlun Bank is actually a wholly owned subsidiary of ICBC or whatever. Yeah. And you've got to have um, intelligence collection, right? You've got to make it a prioritization for, uh, for our intelligence community to, to, to seek out um, that behavior, which again, back to the if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority um, uh, dynamic. You know, when, when, when you start tasking the intelligence community with uh, advancing social, social goals, right? Climate change, um, looking at, uh, um, uh, you know, mass migration as, as intelligence community priorities, doesn't, it doesn't, I'm not saying that those things aren't, uh, aren't useful to look at, but it means there will be fewer resources, less time available to, to go after sanctions enforcement and, and other, other topics related to China. Oh, it's me. Thank you, guys. Um, so I'm actually an intern for Senator Rubio, but I found um, what you were saying in the middle very interesting about um, capitalism as being the solution. Um, I agree. However, we're facing it against we're facing an enemy that has invested in companies and ran a state capitalist system that they're the second biggest economy in the world. Um, and so my question is: Is has the time for free market capitalism ran up, and will we be able to defeat China based on? Our uh, our uh, past um, past capitalist system, or do we need a sort of industrial capitalism like the senator was um, was proposing uh, in order to uh, compete against China, who steals our intellectual property and invests heavily in their techno technology companies and has done so fairly successfully? What do you think, Mike? Or, yeah. um, well. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, um, you know, it depends on exactly what you mean by industrial capitalism. You know, Dean, I think, correctly outlined some of the dangers of industrial policy, of the government picking winners and losers in the market. But at the same time, you have to um, enable competition in, in a fair way, right? Uh, to the senator's analogy of 10 basketball players against five basketball players. If one party um, in the free market is consistently cheating and they aren't held to account for it, then um, uh, then, then of course you're going to end up with a lopsided result, um, and 
it, it is a proper role of the U.S. government to make sure that um, in trade, um, in the other facets of economic competition, that the rules are being followed. And if one side, in here China, is going to consistently not follow the rules, is going to um, steal intellectual property, is going to force U.S. companies to enter coercive joint venture agreements, then you know, we have to start reevaluating you know, free market principles that would otherwise, otherwise hold true in the context of you know, persistent cheating by one side. Yeah, and, and you know, to that effect, too, and, um, you know, Congress seems to pull on this lever consistently that subsidies, and this is not just unique to the China debate, looking at Jack Spencer here, uh, you know, who, who loves a subsidy. Um, but it does nothing in, in the long run. Like I said, you talk about semiconductors as a good example. Um, you know, the problem, you know, is multifaceted there because there was, you know, in the case of semiconductors, there was a drought in Taiwan at one point. There was a hard freeze in Texas. There were, was COVID, which changed essentially entire supply chains. Uh, and yet, you know, a supply chain is starting to kind of counter-react to that. And so you're having a Department of Commerce, you know, promulgate a rule now trying to figure out how to, how to put Humpty Dumpty together in terms of a program. And I can tell you, it is not going to be efficient and likely will end up in a, an area where in five to 10 years from now, we could have a glut of semiconductors because we're not just unique. You know, India, the EU, others are all doing these subsidies. And so my personal view is you're not gonna out China by being more like China. And so there's other tools in our toolbox that I think that Congress, it's harder to do because it's difficult in terms of looking at export control mechanisms, which we use very successfully in the Trump administration as related to Huawei. Um, there's been discussions about, you know, even some of the foreign-based capital that is leaving the United States, uh, that that shouldn't be used to invest in uh, the technology sectors or especially companies related to the PLA and CCP in China. So when Tim Cook signs a deal with, you know, Apple to uh, give $275 billion to the Chinese technology sector, those things are pretty easy things that the Congress should be taking a look at and figuring out, well, that's probably not in the best interest of the United States, and that's not a subsidy, but that's an additional action that we could take. Just also throw out there, you know, and I, the, you know, the senator when he was talking about capitalism, absolutely hit it on the head. Rule of law and equality before the law. We have on the books Sarbanes-Oxley. Now I'm not going to get into whether Sarbanes-Oxley is a good or bad idea. Uh, let me also emphasize I'm not an economist, um, but I will say the following. If you are going to require American companies to abide by Sarbanes-Oxley in all of its reporting, why in the world would you then turn around and say, but Chinese companies listing in the United States don't have to abide by those same rules? That is the reality because a federal agency signed a deal with the Chinese in 2015. By the way, that was before Donald Trump. Um, yeah to say that Chinese companies don't have to abide by all the financial reporting requirements. That alone, that's us taking players off the field while the Chinese put 10 players on the court. Mike Frank. Uh, it's a great panel. Um, Mike Frank, he used to work for Dustin back no. in the old days. <laughs> um, He's my first boss. Do you guys foresee a p point where China can, in some ways, uh, surmount the need to even worry about swift sanctions, where its currency might supplant the U.S. dollar as the world's kind of preeminent currency. Uh, they wouldn't need to do any more uh, 
you know, stealing of our technology, our intellectual property. Are they moving in that direction, or are they always going to be in this sort of gray area where this mercantilist type cap form of capitalism they have is going to be dependent upon stealing stuff and and kind of working in the shadows? I mean, are they on the road to to that point? That's scary. It scares me if it's true. Michael, do you have any? Um, yes, they are on that path. They would like to get there. We see this in artificial intelligence and quantum computing, where they are our equals. They are not stealing nearly as much as they used to, in part because they're now ahead of us. They put up the first quantum communication satellite. They have the, had the longest record of a quantum communications link. Um, with regards to finance, on the other hand, that is actually up to us. If we insist on devaluing the American dollar and adding trillions of unpayable debt, then and also kicking off key allies who produce oil so that they re-denominate oil in renminbi, you could see a series of events that would undermine the dollar as the global reserve currency. Doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. But that is on us to act responsibly. And this is not an issue of responsible or irresponsible, but when you know, Fed uh, Chairman, I believe, Powell says, I could see a world where there's more than one global reserve currency. First off, that's very hard to imagine, but two, you have just signaled the world, we're not going to fight to be dominant. That's a really bad message to say. And on the AI portion, too, a lot of people kind of have this misnomer that just, you know, just it's the technology development, but a lot of it is the essentially feeding of data into you know advancing algorithms and computational power to do it and so the one thing the chinese are really good at is sucking up a ton of the world's data uh including you know roughly 80 to 90 percent of americans personal information is you know consumed up by the chinese right now and you know a lot of people say well what nefarious purposes could that be used for down the road and so as they're you know essentially jamming this all into the, the building of better systems I mean, that's where this race is really going. And so one thing we could possibly do in the United States is, you know, not allow, allow for the sale of commercial, you know, data from Americans, you know, to international bodies, especially at least at minimum, you know, an adversary such as China and the CCP. Um, and so that's something, you know, we're talking a lot about here. I think we have time maybe our, for one more quick one. Go ahead. Hi there. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your talk. This is really, really exciting for me. Um, so I China quite a bit. <clears throat> I'm Chris Hayes. I work here at the Heritage Foundation. And um, one of the things that um, I've been noticing from from the, the war in Ukraine uh, is that Putin's tactics are often about sort of upending the chessboard rather than playing, just changing the status, the status quo, the boots on the ground. Um, and as I look at China with demographic problems, uh, they're resource dependent in energy and food and other and often water and core areas. And so, do you do you foresee that China needs to uh, take bold action uh, to change the the situation on the ground within the next couple of decades, just to ameliorate the difficulties they're going to have in core areas like energy dependence, food shortages, issues with water, and demographic collapse? <laughs> you, you, you talk. You brought up about the uh, is it the milk formula analogy? Ah. Um, so China has a huge array of problems, as you know. Um, 
and perhaps the biggest one is ultimately legitimacy of Xi Jinping, not just the CCP. Um, that being said, I do think it's important to note that Russians and Chinese as a national nature are somewhat different. Uh, certainly Mr. Putin loves chaos. And Xi Jinping in his actions, I think, has demonstrated that he is distinctly averse to chaos. So changing the international system, changing the rule, yeah, one of the things I would argue is that China believes in the rules-based international order, just not our rules. And so, whereas Mr. Putin would be happy to take the rule book you know, rip it in half and throw it in the fireplace. Um, that's a very different model of upending things. Technological upending, 6G, uh, yet another information revolution, sure, especially if China can surf the, the lead edge of that wave. But simply overturning the system, you know, war is bad for maintaining supply chains, especially the ones that China is part of. So I would suggest that in that regard, it's less likely to do the kind of thing. Now, that is not a safe pass. That's not a hall pass for Taiwan. Taiwan's a different issue. But simply going to war, I, I think that, that she looks at it differently than Putin. Well, I, I think to one of the points you made earlier, you know, the, the entwinement of the US economy and the Chinese economy is so different than the situation between Russia, right? You know, Russia's economy. Uh, a fraction of China's, um, you know, certainly advanced in certain areas, but um, you know, not the same manufacturing base, not the same dependence on you know, foreign markets for, um, for customers for its products, right? It's, it's, it's a different proposition for China. Yeah. Well, I think we're, we've run out of time, but uh, I want to thank uh, Michael and, and Dean for some excellent uh, thoughts. And I wanted to thank again Senator Rubio uh, his, his office and everything that they're working on in the Senate. Um, we'll have some refreshments outside. I want to thank our audience that joined us in person and online, and we'll keep the discussion going at Heritage. Thank you.